0: good morning good afternoon good evening from wherever you may be this is snapshots in hockey history and welcome to another episode of snapshots in hockey history where we relive the hockey highlight reel My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. at Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook. And at Snapshots in on Twitter. Okay, guys, I said it last week, and I'll say it again. The playoffs are killing me. This time, though, it's 4.36, and I'm recording it, so now I'm officially up an hour before I was Last week, I stayed up late last night watching the Vegas Golden Knights and the San Jose Sharks, and other than seeing that we're going to have a Game 7, the other takeaway was that, evidently, Little Wayne and Gordon Ramsay are good friends. Who would have thought? Talk about the odd couple. I saw them at the game last night together. I mean, okay, whatever. Talk about expanding the game to new markets, an English chef and a, and a rapper, but hey, it's cool. Everybody enjoys hockey, I guess want to thank Gino Ochik again for coming on last week. It was our most downloaded episode. Everybody really enjoyed it. I'm glad to see it. That's why I do this. I, I well, I do this selfishly. I love doing the interviews, but it's also fun to spread these guys' stories, maybe players that haven't, you know, you don't see every day anymore. Um and, and we've got one this week that I think was a, a, an awesome interview and I wish he was out there a little bit more and that's Jerome Dupont. Um, he coaches in the OJHL. I think he's really well known across Canada and, and in Chicago, where he played. But, you know, in Washington, D.C. market, where I live and some other markets, I don't think his name is as well known. And he had a pretty good career, played, you know, five or six years in the NHL. And, and I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this interview. Uh, definitely talks a lot about some old school Chicago Blackhawks stuff. For his interview, we cover the 84-85 season. We talk about the first round during the interview, and then we get into the two, uh, rounds two and three. So really, we, when I say 84-85 season, we go from about February moving on to the Stanley Cup playoff run. Uh, the Hawks went through some changes. This was the first year that they didn't have Tony Esposito in net in like 15 years. Also, their head coach, Orville Tessier, gets let go in February. So we kind of start there, and then we kind of build off that and go into the playoffs. So without further ado... Here's our interview with Jerome DuPont. So we're covering the 85 or the 84-85 season, and specifically the playoff run. And the 85 season, it seemed like the Blackhawks were kind of going through a little bit of a change. This was the first time that you didn't have Tony Esposito in between the pipes since 1970. You had a young kid named Eddie Olchuk that was 18 years old. In February of 85, the team was 22, 28, and 3. So it was kind of a little bit of a rough year so far. And GM Bob Polifers decided to go ahead and shake the team up, and he fired head coach Orville Tessier. That's right. I got to ask you, you know, he's a guy I've never really heard about. What was he like as a coach? What was the background on him?
1: Well, he came out of uh, coaching junior hockey, major junior Cornwall Royals, Uh, In fact, a couple of the players that had him as a coach, um, Rick Patterson and Bobby Murray, so they they knew him a bit. Uh, Definitely uh, of the old school nature in terms of his approach. Uh, Not overly technical, uh, but definitely a guy that would uh, get uh, riled up if things weren't going the way he wanted. Um, Very, very vocal. Uh, And... uh, you know, a bit of a screamer, uh, but, you know, he, he won coach of the year. So I guess, you know, you got to give him credit the year before. Um, uh, although I do think that uh, year two, you know, guys are starting to tune him out a bit.
0: He was relieved of his duties following a weekend series against the St. Louis Blues. And after the St. Louis Blues game, Dennis Savard was quoted in the Pinteragraph, which was a paper in Chicago as saying, I'm not sure of what's going on, but I guess I could expect the worst. It has been rumored that if we didn't win these games, that the coach would be gone. Sounds like the team was in an interesting state. Do you recall kind of how things were going inside the locker room around this time?
1: Yeah, good question. Like I know for myself personally I wasn't playing that much under Orville uh and uh, you know it was frustrating, but you know you just uh, you know you you work through it regardless. Uh, I was kind of an in and out guy. Um but I, I think overall, you know, the the team uh had um you know quit on him to maybe some extent. And uh, it was way too good of a team not to be successful. So, you know, Pulley, in his infinite wisdom, you know, decided to make a change. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, Roger was around, you know, uh, an experienced guy. So, you know, them combined uh, took over and obviously uh,
0: turned the ship around. You just mentioned Bob Pulliford and Pulley, as you called him. And he's a guy I'd love to chat about. And he's a guy, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he drafted you. What was yes. your relationship like with him?
1: Well, um I'd say very good. Uh I liked him a lot. We um seemed to be on the same page. You know, he's uh not exactly your your standard guy, very smart guy, very motivated guy. Uh you know, filled, you know, various roles in the hockey world, GM, coach and and been very good at 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 everything he's done. You know, uh, coached in LA before he came to Chicago and then took on the dual role of GM and, and, uh, head coach, uh, at least when he, when he decided to, to fire uh, Orville, uh, but he was, you know, smart as well to, you know, surround himself with good people, Roger being one of them. And I, I felt, uh, you know, he, he really, he, he really motivated me because he, he took a, an intelligent uh, approach about the game was very detail-oriented and uh, was definitely different from what we had uh, experienced prior. Uh, and, you know, say say what you want, but I, I think a breath of fresh air would be an accurate description.
0: You talked about a, a refreshing change in X's and O's and things like that. Under Tessier, was it really, I mean, did you guys have a game plan every night or was he just out there kind of on the bench harping and, and then Pulliford kind of brought in a more of a system type approach
1: well I, I think that's accurate to some extent I mean I'm not saying that Orville didn't uh, uh, have some structure in terms of his his coaching sure uh, coaching but I, I would say that it, it became more detail oriented more structured more uh, adaptive you know which is which is key when you're playing you know, teams that do certain things, uh, you know, you need to, you may need to change your approach in order to, um, to, to be more successful. And, uh, Bob was a a real bright individual and so was Roger. So there was always, you know, very detailed game plans going into our games. And that was definitely different uh, than when Orville was there, not saying that there wasn't a a bit of tactical going on, but there was definitely, there was definitely more when Bob and, and, and Roger took over.
0: And you said it, as soon as he took over, it paid immediate dividends the first game, the Hawks topped the Leafs 3-2 to with him behind the bench. Steve Larmer would score a goal. I believe you scored a goal as well during this game. It would kick off a pretty good turnaround for the Blackhawks, but changes continued to occur with goalie Murray Bannerman. He sidelined with a pulled stomach muscle, and this would kind of haunt him the rest of the season. And then Warren Skodorinsky, who I know literally nothing about, what was the goaltending situation like? I, I think there was also a little five foot five goaltender who made his debut that year, Darren Pang. That's
1: right, well, I mean it was uh, definitely different because Tony was an icon, and uh you know him no longer you know being part of the team, you know changed things uh, not uh, necessarily for the good or bad, and just made it different. Uh, Murray was the understudy, and, and he was the guy that was going to take over and be be the number one and, and kingpin. But you know, him getting hurt uh, put us in a precarious position. You know, Warren was a decent goalie, so was Darren, and uh, they um, you know they they were good when they were you know when they were you know counted on. Uh, but you know, Murray was was really the number one.
0: Panger would go on to make his NHL debut towards the end of February in a 4-1 loss to the North Stars. Despite his loss, he was praised very highly for his performance. Darren, of course, has become famous now for a broadcaster. You guys were young guys. What do you remember about Darren Pang around that time?
1: Well he was an upbeat uh, bright guy um you know uh he didn't didn't take it didn't take you know the day to day that seriously you know like mm-hmm. he kept it light but obviously when you know when it was his game or or he or or when he could be getting the call to go in. You know, he was very serious about his craft and, and it, albeit not big, uh, definitely played No, I was big. to
0: say, I don't think he's big. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not, not big, but he played big and, you know, he realized that, you know, he couldn't be deep in his net to make saves. Why? Because, you know, there was just too much net exposed. So when he, um, when he played and, and he could get out set and square for shots, you know, he was, you know, out, out very quickly and, and there typically to make the save and was very effective.
0: A month later, the Blackhawks play the Toronto Maple Leafs again, and this time the Hawks win this one with a 4-3 overtime win off a Doug Wilson goal. And Doug fascinates me because he's now the GM of the San Jose Sharks. He's been there for years. He was a strong defenseman there. You played with him. How would you describe his style, and, and did you guys ever share the ice together?
1: Uh, a little bit um but you know for the most part it was him and bob murray uh, but i definitely played alongside him at times uh, on the right uh, played my offside i mean Doug was a stud on the back end i mean he quarterbacked the power play on our number 1 unit had a howard server shot uh, got the puck to the neck quickly um you know was really uh, really a heady player not overly physical but physical enough to be effective and uh was a fierce competitor, you know even though he wasn't a guy that would typically drop his gloves you know he would he would channel his energies into his game, and uh you know he
0: was good <laughs> like he was real good. you mentioned dropping the gloves, and this is kind of interesting. You had a couple of scraps this year. What was kind of your role at this point on the team?
1: Well, I didn't have uh, the talent that uh, you know uh uh you know Doug Wilson had or Bobby Murray or some of the some of the defensemen that were on our team, so you know you got to realize you know what your role is to some extent and sure. and how you can how you can bring value to the table and really at that level uh you know I was just a big you know strong you know stay-at-home D that that prox physicality and wasn't wasn't afraid to mix it up if needed but you know that was something that 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 I think was was uh Uh, key you know in in terms of providing uh, although we did have a lot of toughness we could go down the list of real tough players but I mean back then the game was you know very much about intimidation to some extent and we were definitely not a team that got intimidated Um, so I did my little little part in you know uh, the you know aggressive side of the game I guess you could say um
0: and, and tried to hold my own otherwise. Well, you guys played in the Norris division, and the Norris division was a tough division back then. Yeah, it was brutal. Oh, yeah. it had to be. And one of the rivalries for the Chicago Blackhawks, and I'm assuming at the time this was the rivalry, was against the St. Louis Blues.
1: Both, both those rivalries were, were really intense.
0: Uh, and let's talk about that rivalry with the Blues. What do you remember during your career? Do any games stick out to you? Do any moments stick out to you against playing against the St. Louis Blues while you were with the Chicago Blackhawks?
1: Well, I remember putting a goal in my own net in St. Louis. And, uh, you know, needless to say, the crowd roared. Um, You know, but that happens. You know, your stick's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Always uh, very, very competitive games. I mean, they had some some high-end talent uh, with Federico and Babich. And, you know, go down the list of players that they have. But they also had some tough players. uh, uh, You know, obviously, um, Daryl's brother, uh, one of the Sutters, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Brian was was uh, a leader for them. Um, I think Robbie Ramage played for them at the time. You know, I I, I may be wrong, but I I think he could have um, Wickenheiser, etc. So you know they were they were a really good team, and uh, you know it was anybody's uh, guess as to who was going to win on any given night. Um, and and there were some you know some some brawls to boot, and uh, it really uh, made for um, some, some some entertaining hockey. How's that?
0: Very, uh, very good response. And one guy you mentioned, I totally had forgotten about and he, he was taken from us way too soon was Doug Wickenheiser. Yes, um, I think he was first overall, if I'm not mistaken. And he, was. he wasn't considered one of the most successful first overall picks. You played against him, though. What were his skills? I mean, what kind of skill set did he have?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, it's not his fault that he was drafted first all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Good point. You know, that's a decision that teams make. And, you know, he was definitely um, a top five pick. Uh, anyway, you cut it, you know, you could say that Dennis Savard might have been a better pick. I mean, we were fortunate to get Dennis and everybody knows about his storied career. Um, Wickedizer was just a real solid, you know, uh, two-way sentiment that, that could bring some offense. Great on face-offs. Uh, real heady. Um, you know came to play wasn 't you know uh, overly aggressive necessarily, but uh, he, he was he was effective
0: at the end of March. The hottest team in the league, the Philadelphia Flyers come to town, and this game was a rough one. You actually got called a five minute major for spearing. They were forty eight twenty and seven so they had a great record and a lot of people credit Pelly Lindbergh at the time for the for this sudden turn for the Philadelphia yeah. Flyers. What was it like? I, I mean, you played against him, and I know you weren't a forward; you were a defenseman. Do you think he was one of the all-time greats, and, and maybe would have gone even further had he not been taken from us so soon?
1: Referring to it, Lindbergh, you say?
0: Yes, sir. Um,
1: yeah, no, like he—he he was great, and, and you know, obviously, his death was a shock to the hockey world. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it a car accident? Uh, it was.
0: It was. He was. Uh, he was in his Porsche, and he slid on the road in Philadelphia.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so that was a shocker. Um, playing Philly, you know, with him and that obviously made them, you know, as as good as it gets. Uh, you know the the issue with playing Philly, you know, with them coming off their Broad Street Bully years, was you know you you're really just thinking about the fight you're going to get into in the first period, uh, and, then, <laughs> and then you know the hockey game began, you know, uh, and and they were able to 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 do both play the game and play play real rough, um, and we were by no means a pushover team, and yeah, I remember that game distinctly. I, I don't necessarily remember the spring uh, major that I took, but I, I do remember the fight, uh, or two, uh, you know, at least when we played them and, and, uh, it was just, you know, the way of the world back then. And you definitely, uh, you know, you, you had to be prepared to play them and play them, play them tough because, uh, they were about as good as it gets at the time.
0: Jerome, you're probably 24, 25 at this time. What's it like for you going into a game, knowing that you're going to have to scrap? How did you deal with that? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, there's the the nervous, nervousness and the be. fear, but the best way to conquer fear is to, to deal with it head on. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we tried to do that to the best of our abilities. And, uh, I mean, if you go down the list of tough players we had, you know, you could name them, you know, Secord and Bully and Mulvey and, you know, I don't know if Ben Wilson was with us then uh, or not, uh, but I mean, the, the list goes on and on, you know, Terry Ruskowski, even even the guys that weren't supposed to be tough guys were real, um, you know, tough hockey players like Sutter and Lysiak and, you know, uh, and the list goes, the list on, just goes and on, on and on and on. And I'm yeah. missing the guys and, I, and I, I apologize for maybe not, uh, you know, hitting them. Uh, or naming them all. But, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we were a gritty, combative group. And, and, you know, we were a tough, tough team to play when, when the going got tough.
0: And, and that's why we
1: were, you know, a good
0: playoff team. The final game of the year, the going did get tough. You guys wrap up at a game against the Chicago Blackhawks, and you end up fighting Joey Koster not once, but twice. And then in the first round of the playoffs, you'll go to play the Detroit Red Wings again, and you fight Joey again. Yeah. Well, what was the deal with Joey?
1: Well, better fight uh, Joey Kosher than fight, uh, you know, Probert, I guess. Oh, God, nightmares for
0: both. Well, I
1: mean, I played left defense. He was a right winger, so it was a bit of a natural. You know, obviously, he was uh, um, a guy that, uh, you know, intimidated a lot of people. And I was just trying to kind of neutralize that that, uh, piece of their puzzle. Um, But they were a real, real good team uh, that, you know, had all sorts of uh, talent, but at the same time, uh, some grit, and uh, they were a, a difficult, uh, difficult team to to play on any given night.
0: I just couldn't believe that it was Joey Kosher multiple times. It, it just, it was kind of interesting to me when I saw that. I was wondering if if it was just one of these things where you know, when you saw him, you were going to have to go.
1: Well, you know, we, we played pretty physical against each other. I mean, he uh, he was. The hardest puncher i've ever fought um Oof. i guess the, the the one thing i would say is you could see them coming so that helped a bit so you could protect yourself uh but i mean nobody threw a punch like joey kosher that's for sure oh
0: man the playoffs are set to begin since pulley took over you guys are 16 7 and 4 so a huge improvement and you draw the detroit red wings in the first round it included this team included steve eiserman ron dugay daryl sittler john ogrodnick the talk before the series was focused on how the Red Wings goaltender, Greg Stefan was going to be the key factor. He had supposedly caused some heartache for the Blackhawks. Do you recall him at all being a guy that would always come into town and, and you'd have to be on your toes for
1: yeah, I mean, he was, uh, you know, the Billy Smith of, uh, I guess, of, of his era to some extent, uh, but you know, a real good goaltender. I played him in junior when he was with the Oshawa General, so I know him. You know, I, I knew him fairly well as a player, not not as an individual. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he was he was a gamer and and seemed to uh, yeah. seemed to play his best <laughs> when it mattered most.
0: You can't ever replace goaltending, especially when those guys become hot during That's game one. Sure. On The Blackhawks pounced the Detroit Red Wings with a 2-0 lead. The Hawks would end up scoring nine goals, which broke a team record for the most goals scored in a playoff game. Eddie Olchuk ended up getting three points on the night, and you also squared off with Joey Kosher again, as we just talked about a few minutes ago. Game one's done. You got an 18-year-old in the locker room. How excited are you guys? You just smoked a pretty good Detroit Red Wings team.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to get too excited, right? But the reality is, is you're just up one game, in a Florida game, or I don't know. I think actually then it was a three to of five. Because it was
0: You're right. First. It was a best of five. Yep. And you had to That's win three.
1: Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's only one of three wins that you need to win a series. So it's, you know, the, the veteran leadership there, I think, uh, was, was key because, you know, as a younger player, um, Eddie or myself, or whoever else was, was on the team that would be of the younger version, you know, you, you have a tendency to maybe get a little too high. And, um, uh, You know, that's that's not a good thing, because the reality is, is that it's a marathon, not not a sprint.
0: Just one night later, you probably got even higher again. I kind of weirded the way I said that. But the Red Wings went on to win six to or I'm sorry, the Blackhawks went on to win six to one. And GM Bob Pulford was saying as this was a near flawless game. You had gone nine and oh on the penalty kill. Unbelievable stats. Defensively, you were on that core. What was kind of the model of the Chicago Blackhawks defensively?
1: Well, uh, fundamentals first, for sure. Um, You know, protect the core. um, You know, make sure that, uh, you know, you're, uh, at least on the penalty kill, that you're not cut out there too long so you could maximize your on-ice energy. You know, getting sticks and bodies in lanes. uh, um, You know, good net front box out out when shots were about to come. uh, You know, support. um, And, you know, I think um we we had their number at least early and uh and uh we played to uh the structure and executed the game plan and uh, it paid off
0: supposedly the arena from everything i read in the chicago tribune was on fire the fans were belligerent i've always wanted to talk to somebody about the chicago stadium and i haven't really had the opportunity to as somebody that was on the home team what do you remember about that building
1: Got um, well. Let's put it this way: When we got deep into the playoffs uh, against Edmonton, you know, one of the stories that <laughs> I'd like to, you know, kind of recount is that um, you know we'd be downstairs waiting to go up for the warm up. We're not talking game here; we're talking about the warm up, and and we could feel the building vibrating uh, above us. Uh, because we oh come from below, and and it truly was, and and the place was was sold out for you know for for you know an hour before game time, and you know they you know with the second we came on, even for warm up, we were getting standing o's. Um, and uh, one thing that I remember was um, uh, in, in one of the games uh, against Edmonton in the uh, conference final, uh, taking. Um, I think it was Glenn Anderson out into the glass, you know, with a hit mm-hmm. and it shattered. Oh, you broke and, the glass. And uh and the crowd basically went ballistic. Uh and and it continued on for the for 10 minutes as they were trying to fix, you know, or replace the pane of glass and clean up, you know, the the shattered glass from the ice and it w- it was amazing, you know, how how loud they were, how <laughs> you know, how uh, excited they were, you know, and this was just a hit, you know, and, and, you know, it, yeah, okay. It was a decent hit, but it wasn't so much right. that it was, uh, you know, a crumbling hit. Uh, it was just, you know, more the, the situation where you kind thing. of hit the glass in the right spot and it, and it ended up shattering And but the crowd really went
0: crazy. And I, I, I remember it vividly. Let's talk about getting into or, or getting onto the ice. Wasn't there steps that you guys would literally have to climb up on with your skates on to get to the, uh, get to the ice?
1: yeah it's it seemed like a long haul but you know with the noise uh you know welcoming you so to speak it 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 wasn't hard to get up the steps but there was at least at least 20 risers uh from below um i would say you know maybe even more 25 that type of thing and uh it was you know that that's where the dressing was located and he came up uh, behind our our net uh to get on the ice and uh uh, it was uh, a little different, but uh, um, oh, it's cool! You know, it makes it, it unique. Yeah, it, it just an incredible, incredible place to play. Like I, I've been in the United Center. Obviously, it's beautiful, but it didn't have near the the same ambiance that uh, uh, the stadium had.
0: I wish you could see the smile on my face right now as I hear about this, because it's one building that I wish I could have gone to. And I'm going to ask this: these older buildings, you know, I've heard the Boston Bruins, the Boston Gardens, they had rats in the locker room. What were the locker rooms like in this building
1: well you you know i i didn't I saw a little bit of that you know um you know if you came in earlier or were leaving late, you know you'd see the odd uh you know critter kind of crawl across mm-hmm. the floor you, you know not not in your dressing room but more so in the bowels of the re- arena you know um you know i I, I guess You know, it just added to the luster to some extent, you know,
0: Um, isn't that funny how something like that adds to the aura of it? And and I mean, it's nasty. You have rats or, or whatever it may be. But that dirty and that grittiness, I feel like that's really missing in arenas today.
1: Yeah, but I mean the the room, you know the the players' room that included the training area and the gym and and the, you know the the pool. You know we we had a pool table where we'd you know area where we'd leave our clothes and whatnot. I mean it, it was immaculate, like it it truly was immaculate. So we never saw you know anything like that in in our in our rooms per se. It was more kind of you know when you decided to mosey on down, let's say the hall of the ball balls of the arena. Uh, underneath the seating that you might you might see something but it was it was it was the exception to the rule
0: that makes that makes a lot of sense and, and the house of course or or the the arena was built by bill Wirtz, and it's fascinating to me these two home games were not aired on tv that was something he was totally against yeah. you probably hung out with the Wirtz family or, or that's not probably the word i want to use you probably had some association with the Wirtz family what did you think of their theory on black blacking out games you know, if the, if the house hadn't sold out.
1: Yeah. Interesting. You know, when you, when you're, when you're in the thick of it and you're a young guy, you you, you probably don't put a ton of thought. Into oh, you probably that. don't
0: think about I mean, it at all. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, as you kind of you step away from the game, you kind of figure, well, geez, you know, I mean, had it been broadcasted, it probably would have cr- created even more interest on in the team. Um, so I, I think that that, that thinking has been proven, you know, to be not necessarily the right thinking. Uh, But at the time, you know, that was their philosophy. (laughs) You just went for the, went with the flow. You're just happy to be there and you wanted to, you know, do your best.
0: As you guys know, I love history, not just hockey history, but world history, U S history, whatever. I'm a nerd. I love history. And I wish I had a time machine, so, I could go back and visit the old Chicago Stadium. That building just sounds incredible. And for those who haven't seen clips of players in the 70s, 80s, 60s, whenever, they would actually go up a flight of stairs in order to get to the ice. It was something that has been described to me as an unreal experience. And as you guys can hear, the madhouse on Madison was rocking. And I'm really, really glad Jerome came on to kind of talk to us about his experiences there, kind of what he remembers. And I think he did a really, really good job of taking us back and describing what that building was like. And this building was full of history, not just hockey history, but Michael Jordan played there with the Bulls during his heyday also Elvis Presley performed there tons of entertainment pop culture type stuff as well as a ton of hockey history so uh, really enjoyed that and I think everybody will enjoy part two of our interview with Jerome which will drop on Thursday at 8 a.m. we talk about the Edmonton Oilers and the Minnesota North Stars we continue on with the playoff series that they're the opening playoff round against the Detroit Red Wings uh, Jerome has some great stories talks a little bit about the Wertz family I enjoyed that so we'll see everyone Thursday at 8 a.m. in the meantime enjoy the playoff hockey I know we got a pair of Game 7's coming up, at least two Game 7's coming up, we might even have more so, see you on Thursday at 8am